Welcome to another edition of Boulder Boulding with Keith Ruckhouse and Alec Tsukatus. And today we want to continue our discussion of land and property. And I want Alec to just dive in and introduce this topic for us. So Alec, take it away. All right then. Hello. Uh, the, the notion of property is associated with the idea of ownership. And we can divide up property into various kinds. So I'll suggest one way of dividing property. The one that is the most ancient one, if you will, is ownership of land or use of land. But with capitalism in the 18th century, then the use of land actually was turned by law into owning land. So land is one kind of property, something that you can own, by which I mean that you can exclude other people from using it. So if I own a house, I can exclude all other people from owning it. That doesn't mean that I do exclude them, but I can. I have the legal right and the support of the law in excluding other people from making use of it. The second uh, category of property is the one that emerged in a very big way in the 18th century with the introduction of capitalism. That is to say, ownership of physical capital, machinery, of uh, the implements of industry, essentially. So you can own this kind of property. The fact that you own capital doesn't mean that you don't own land. You can own both land and capital. The third category of ownership is labor, that you can own your own labor rather than somebody else owning you. You have ownership to uh, your own labor, and just like with other property, you have ownership of things that a land that land produces, that capital produces, that you produce. And the one, in my estimation, that is the most recent is the uh, evolution of the notion of information. You know, that's what the big monopolies of today are, uh, are made of, are uh, ownership of information. And essentially, uh, you can use that information only if you pay for it in one form or another. I want to go back to what I said a little bit earlier about this notion of uh, capital, physical capital, machinery, being owned by people, by a small percentage of people. This was a necessary part of the evolution of capitalism. Essentially, with Adam Smith, he had two ways that he proposed of increasing output. One was specialization of labor. So you didn't have each person produce the finished product or the finished service on his or her own, you had to have a number of people that are specialized in producing this one output. 
So that increased uh, productivity enormously, and that's by and large the basis, one of the two bases of capitalism, is that you have specialization of labor and specialization of capital and specialization very much of land, but primarily of labor. That is Adam uh, Smith's made, uh, one of his major contributions. The other thing is the production of capital the production of capital, the accumulation of capital. You have to have put aside some monies and some resources to create machines which will then create useful products and services. Instead of human beings directly creating something that uh, they can sell, here we have the intervention of capital that is to say, human beings build machines which in turn build stuff that people want and are willing to sell. So these two are the principal building blocks of capitalism from Adam Smith. You can't have an increase in production unless you have these two things. Remind me of what those two things are. Again. And they are the specialization of labor and the accumulation of capital. That really defines the conditions of the emergence of capitalism. On a second level, but just as important, if you have specialization of labor, then you have to have ways by which this labor can buy things that they want and or need. And that's the introduction of the market system. That is to say, in the sense of, that Adam Smith means it rather than the usual sense of just a place where you exchange goods and services. So if you produce the whole product, you can use it for yourself to nourish yourself, to nourish your family, etc., but if you're just a member of a group of people that is very heavily specialized, then you have to have a marketplace or a market system. So under specialization of labor comes the institution of the market system. And it's very, very, very telling that Adam Smith was very careful by saying not any market system will do, as so many of the neoliberals seem to actually imply, not just seem to, but a, a particular kind of market system, and that is a competitive market system as contrasted to monopolies. All right, then the fourth element in this matrix is that underneath the accumulation of capital, you have to have the institution of private property, which is protected by uh, the government through uh, its laws and its police. So why is private property necessary? Because in order to incentivize people to accumulate capital, you have to have an institution that says, if you do accumulate capital, you can keep the benefits from accumulating capital. In other words, you have to give people an incentive to create machines, and the incentive of creating the machines, saving, not consuming, 
putting money into creating a machine, you have to give them the incentive that this machine then will not be stolen, right? Will not be used by other people. So you keep it for yourself and that is protected as private property. Now, with the coming of socialism, you know, one the principal thing that Marx has suggested is certainly not to do away with the first two things, the specialization of labor and the accumulation of uh, capital. All uh, industrial countries have those two things, no exceptions. The things that Marx uh, proposed to change is, what do you put in place of the market system? Well, you put central planning. What do you put in the place of private property? You put in government property. Yes. We come to the modern era where we discover that although capitalism has produced an enormous uh, increase in its output, uh, we have essentially two problems that are faced by capitalism, and we know them very well by now. One of them is the inequality of income and wealth that results, and the other one is the destruction of, uh, of nature. There is a necessity for con confronting that, uh, that issue. The principal way that Marx, in my estimation, confronted it is by dealing with the issue of distribution of income and wealth, the inequality, but not, because it wasn't an urgent issue at his time, the destruction of the environment. In my estimation, with the continuation of capitalism, but even with the continuation of socialism, we will have really very destructive tendencies. One is inequality of income and wealth, and the other one is the destruction of the planet. So, suggestions that have been made are twofold. One is that instead of just having the juxtaposition of private property and government property, that uh, we can uh, introduce other kinds of property. So, for example, we can have public property. Like public lands. Uh, like public lands. We can have social property, perhaps uh, owning uh, uh, a company together, for example. We can have communal property like the commons, where it's actually a bit awkward to talk about it as property because the commons are essentially not owned by anyone. Uh, but you can have uh, public uh, property where you can own something uh, through the government, but not necessarily that the government runs that, uh, that kind of property. So then we would have to argue what are the benefits and dangers of private property? And then we would specify what kind of things can we have private property of and what kind of things it is better to have communal property or uh, social property or what have you. So this is the major discussion that is need to be had 
because we know that government property alone or private property alone is very, very destructive of human well-being and the, uh, the well-being of nature. Okay, so we also need to talk about responsibility of land. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that is really very basic here, and that is the notion of right versus exchange. In the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson and the others suggest that we have certain inalienable rights, amongst which they don't say only those three, but amongst which life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's very, very telling that we now know that initially Jefferson had life, liberty, and property as a right. And then he erased it and put in pursuit of happiness. I don't know what the influence was, but it might have been his own reconsideration. So property is not a right. This is terribly important, I think, because so much of the discussion uh, has uh, gone in the direction of implying that having property and as much property as I can buy is is a human right, and, and therefore nobody, since it's an, an inalienable human right, it can't be taken away from me. Nobody can come in and say, uh, you can't have as much property, whether of land, capital, or information for that matter. And remember, the property means that you can exclude others. Right. And included with that, or right on the heels of that, is if no one can take it away from me, then I need some entity to protect my private property, Yes, which implies the use of force. That's right. So well, law uh, laws initially, and then the use of force uh, when it's needed. Yes, correct. Because people can, without force, follow the law, but they know that if they don't follow the law, then there's going to be violence. So I, I think of uh, our uh, property that our family used to own in the mountains. Uh, when there wasn't a lot of people, there was a lot of wide open space, and it just more and more people kept mm-hmm. buying property. And that's another whole issue is how, how is it that anybody, the government, or how was how land even granted in the first place? Nonetheless, um, people have properties, and so where we used to be able to go hiking and skiing, then all of a sudden there's a fence up. Yes. And it says no trespassing. That's right. Or you will be prosecuted to the full extent of the yes. law. So we have the law behind us, which also means we have violence behind us. That's right. No trespassing signs are the necessary thing to have about everything if capitalism is to exist. This. This is really terribly, terribly important. Fences are 
absolutely the condition of capitalism as an economic system to exist. If you don't have cap, if you don't have fences, then capitalism can't exist, in my estimation. Right. This is a very important point that you bring up there. So this is where I, perhaps I can interject something from uh, some study I did uh, mm-hmm. quite a long time ago in preparation for my book. Yes. Um, on ancient Near Eastern societies and the development of them from Neolithic times onward. And I came up with some conclusions of my own, and I think they're accurate. When you have hunter-gatherer little tribes, little communities, which, by the way, according to Peter Turchin, that they were egalitarian for thousands of years— when you're hunting, hunting and gathering, you're you're moving around a lot. You may land in a place for a while and then move on, but sooner or later, uh, communities started finding land that was suitable and and sustainable. So they stayed on the land. They built on the land. They settled on the land. And my conclusion, after reading about thousands of years of of the development of human civilization in this area, is that Land was simply taken. I mean, you just showed up in a place and you took it. That could be your land as long as you could be sustained by that. In other words, you can, you know, you can have food, you can have health, you can have the the kind of natural resources that it takes to live on the land, and that you can protect that land. That really becomes the key thing of the development of history is like, well, if your land, the land of that tribe is really nice, they have nice water, they have nice resources, they have nice crops, hey, why don't we just go take that land? I really think it's a principle that really travels right on up to today, that really, in the end, land up to this point is... How do you get land? Well, you take it. And that's essentially what the white settlers did here in Colorado. They just, they came in, the the, the Ute tribe in this front range used to have free access to the land. They used to travel around a lot. All of a sudden they come to their summer uh, grounds and find houses and find fences and people with guns. And they said, you can't trespass. I've just taken this land. Mm-hmm. It's mine because I can protect it. Here we yeah, are. Yes, still the, and taking off from that, Keith, there is another much more controversial suggestion as to why the American uh, Revolution of Independence. One is the one that is traditionally accepted and The second one doesn't mean that it denies the first one, but that uh, the British government imposed taxes on American businesses, uh, withholding that tax from uh, from British uh, businesses, especially the East India Company. And there was this rebellion against this unequal treatment with respect to, to taxes. So the other one that I heard of very recently is that the English were looking to have an agreement with the native tribes in America 
for land to be given to the Native Americans of ownership of land to the Native Americans by the Brits so that the colonies would not expand westward because they couldn't because it would be owned by the Native Americans. And so the uh, predominant white uh, people rebelled against the British because the British was keeping them from were keeping them from expanding west and taking the land that uh, was available for right. them to take. But let let me just extend on that that yeah. the presumption of the British Empire that they could grant land. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly was right. based on their own notion that they had taken it. That's right, yes. Uh, and they had done that by conquest. Yeah. And my, my book, uh, Wicked Rich, Wicked Poor, goes into some detail about how this worked out for Israel, ancient Israel, and all the ancient civilizations other than the Assyrians and the Egypt Egyptians. And it's it's still the same principle. If you can take it, if you're a Viking, and you can go in and take take the land, take the property, then it's yours. And if you can protect it, it remains yours. And by yours, it means this thing that, it doesn't mean that you're just using it, but you can keep others from using it. Right, and here's, are we at the double crisis of land management that we have users who are abusing the land and causing massive amounts of environmental Destruction. Uh, destruction, and also saying you you can't do anything about it because right. this is my property. That's right. That's right. So we go back then to the notion: since it's not a right to own land, right? Mm-hmm. It, it means that ownership necessarily has responsibilities. See that that I think is extremely important. A right does not imply responsibility. If if I'm granted the right to, to vote, as you are, you know, it doesn't mean that I will actually use that, uh, that right to vote. I might say, right. no, I won't do it. So a right doesn't imply responsibilities. But ownership, because it's not a right, does imply responsibilities. So here's the thing that uh, we can say. We can agree that there is room for private property. But we can put conditions on that because we can't depend on somebody using that piece of land responsibly. Right? right. It's just like a traffic light. We, we say a rule that there is a red light and you can't cross it. Because right. I can't depend on you being a nice guy or a moral guy to stop at a or place. Or even to be a, a guy that pays attention. That pays attention. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So, so there isn't have... the issue also about land that you can... Well, I'm thinking of the Bundys in Utah and that whole crisis that yes. happened a while back. Yes. In which the Bundys claimed basically... Again, what I'm saying is we just came in and took the land. It was was open land. We took it, and we protected it. And they claimed that we took responsibility for the land. We took care of the land. And so then we can benefit from this, which is which was cattle. Yeah, the government was saying, well, you're you're destroying land, you're endangering uh, species, 
And their, their claim was, well, we know the land better than you. Uh, stay out of our way. So I'm getting to this point of you have someone who, who still came in, took the land, and, and took, but took some responsibility for the land. But they're claiming we have exclusive rights to the profits from this land. Even if it cost animals their extinction, we still have the rights to the profits. And I think part of what the Bureau of Land Management was saying is, no, you know, this is still public land, and you, you, you can't just come in here and, and say that it doesn't matter whether uh, what we're, cost we're, we're doing yes, to the land. I, I would make a, a stronger argument that there are limits also to the use of private land, not just because it's public, but also with private land. I would put restrictions on how much land an individual or, or a family or a corporation can own. We've got to remember that if I own more and more and more and more, that excludes you from owning any. Right. And it also excludes the the common benefit from the land. Uh, although the private landowners have no problem with the public absorbing the cost. Uh, that's right. Uh, in environmental destruction. That, that's right. And that's right. Lack of water, uh, pollution. All of that. And, and, uh, and my my the principle that I'm in favor of with respect to that just like the first principle of the traffic light of keeping the market system operating towards the public good, if you will. The other one is the tailpipe principle that I've developed, which is that uh, whenever you use uh, something that uh, produces a benefit to you, like a car, you know, that mm -hmm. is a benefit to you, you need to have a tailpipe that's a principle, of course, not a, that goes directly into your mouth because <laughs> it let you know that you're imposing a cost that you're unwilling to pay. Right. And whenever you're imposing a cost that you're unwilling to pay, there is a very definite word for that, and it's called theft. <laughs> yes. No, literally. Correct. That's what I mean. You know, so we've got to use the arguments that people have to show them uh, how, if those arguments are really consistently applied to them, they would refuse them. Right. You know, so right. I'm, uh, for example, recently uh, reading a fantastic book on the Declaration of Independence. It's gotten fantastic reviews. It's called Our Revolution, uh, written by Danielle Allen. And in the preface, she says that the re uh, most politicians and most even philosophers considered that the principal idea of the Declaration of Independence, after all, is about liberty. Mm -hmm. And it leaves out the issue of justice and equality. She claims that Jefferson was very, very conscious of the fact that without equality, there cannot be liberty. Okay, yeah. 
I used to read the Declaration once a year, but I'm afraid I've slipped away from that. But that has revived my interest and my love, really, for the Declaration. Both, And she says, both in terms of the principles that are involved and the language that is used. You know, it's this fantastic 18th century English that is so beautiful as a language and so can be so precise. You know. Right. So, yeah. so let's try and turn our conversation now back towards steady state economics mm-hmm. and what we had talked about last yes. week about natural capital and that we certainly are coming, we are here yes. already where we've got to talk in different terms, not just talk, not just you and I having chats over yes. land, but there there has to be some reorientating about what does land ownership mean, land responsibility, and how, how that should apply. I mean, we've got huge mm-hmm. water issues. Colorado, yes, the yes. West is going to have major water issues here. Yes, we already right. have, yes. but... They're just going to get exacerbated. Water cannot be private property, just like air cannot be. With that, we accept that that's the case. Right. You know, because without air, people die, and so you go against the first right of the Declaration of Independence: life. You right. can't have life unless you have air. You can't have life unless you have water. You can't have life unless you have housing you right. know, or some kind of, uh, of housing. And then we also have the, the issue here in Colorado of oil and natural gas extraction. And because of a new methodology called fracking, we now can tunnel for miles away from the original site. So now we have where companies can claim uh, mineral rights underneath your House, your house, <laughs> or your school, or yes. your hospital, yeah, or, or yeah. the government, or the government. That's right. That's right. You, the, so that that's the pathology of unlimited amount of property, and in this case of land. Right. Yeah. Well, you, and you, you, can't, you can only have this amount. That's one. Right. And secondly, you can use it only for those purposes, and certain purposes are not allowed. But I mean, this is, in other words. What we're going for is licensing, just like you don't have a right to own and drive a car. You have to ask for a license, and the license says this is how you can use the car, and this is how you cannot use the car. Yes? Right. And, and you're given this, this um, permission, right, this license, not a right or a permission for a given amount of time, 10 years. Right. And this is, this and is how the oil industry works. You're given a, a yes, license to drill. Yes, but the thing is that if you don't follow the rules of the license, then that license can be taken away. And yeah. without any procedure, just to show that you haven't followed, with the, just like with a, with a car, right? Well, the complaint here in Colorado is that we purchased a license, and they're expensive. They require a lot of capital to get a license with these conditions, you know, these rules to follow. And then, and then they say, but now you're changing the rules. 
And the rules are going to cost us a lot of money to comply with yeah, the rules. Of course. So, You're obviously, the government and whoever it is that changes the rules must, as with all lawmaking, must give justification for changing the rules. The fact that you change the rules doesn't mean that uh, there are worse rules. You've, you have to show that the rules are really very good for the common good. <laughs> and by the way, this was the the states that issued charters before uh, that was overturned in 1886 uh, in the Supreme Court. Companies had charters, and if you wanted to start uh, a mining uh, entity, then the charter can specify and say, yes, and here's the deal. 5% of the profits must be put aside for uh, any accidents that happen and uh, compensation for the people that die or are injured. Right. Uh, that this amount of pollution can come out in the air of this kind per day, per month, per year, etc. And if it isn't, we won't disallow you from continuing to operate, but we'll fine you, just like we fine with somebody who drives a car. What's the difficulty, for goodness sake? You know, the principle is exactly the same. Right. But we've got to get off this idea that property and accumulation of property is a human right. That's not the case. Well, I think that's our theme for this week. And we'll come back again. I th I don't think we're done talking about the issue. No, I of think land. that this issue of property has really captivated my attention. Yes. Yeah. and we want to get to a uh, discussion of taxing land. That is another one of the strategies, yes. in which uh, Alec has uh, done uh, quite a bit of study into Henry George's land tax, and talking about the difference between productive land and unproductive land in which it becomes a source of speculation yeah. for financial capital. Yeah, not that. productive, not productive. Cultivated and uncultivated yeah, Okay, land. Cult yes. cultivated and uncultivated Because if it's land. cultivated, then it's a good idea not to tax it because you've done something positive about uh, on the land. But it's right. uncultivated land where you get the reward that without you offering anything. Rent. That's called yes, rent. That's right. You you get the benefit of owning that land without Correct. doing anything about it. And that occurred to me uh, several years ago when we had a really good harvest of tomatoes in our little garden. And I said, boy, I produced some really good tomatoes until I stopped myself to say, well, I didn't produce any good tomatoes. It's nature that produced the tomatoes. So how come I claim earning that? When I, what I can claim is that small portion of actually planting it, of watering it, of mm, right. putting some uh, nutrients in, etc., etc. That I shouldn't be taxed on because I've earned it. Well, we'll, we'll continue more next time. Thank you, Alec. Thank you. Wonderful opportunity.